I want to start by telling you about one of the worst picnics in history. On the morning of July 21st, 1863, a crowd of eager civilians, including several U.S. congressmen, actually, rode southwest out of Washington, D.C., and they were headed towards Centerville, Virginia. And in their buggies and on their horses, they carried picnic baskets and opera glasses, which we know as binoculars, right? And they reached a high point near Centerville, and they spread out their blankets and looked down over Manassas Railroad Junction uh, near a creek called Bull Run. There, the Union forces and the Confederate forces were lined up against each other for what would be the first open field battle of the Civil War. And uh, all the folks from Washington were excited to see their fine blue Yanks uh, whip on the Confederates. Uh, they were hoping that the war would be over sometime around dinner and they would get to go back together and toast uh, to their victory and uh, this short war. It didn't go that way. Uh, the congressmen soon found themselves surrounded by a steady stream of blue-coated Union soldiers who were fleeing for their lives. Senator, Senator Henry Wilson of Massachusetts was passing out sandwiches to his colleagues when a Confederate shell hit his buggy and blew it to pieces. And he actually escaped from the battlefield by commandeering a stray mule and riding back to Washington on someone else's donkey. If there's anything I can think of more shameful than that, I'm not sure. Uh, Alfred Ellie of New York was captured by the Confederates, and instead of going back to Washington, D.C. that night, he found himself in Richmond as a prisoner of war. According to one report, the senators who came back to Washington had gloomy faces. They had gloomy faces. One said, He'll, I'll never go near a war zone again. They showed up expecting a picnic. What they got was a war. Now, as a Christian, I can relate to that feeling. Uh, I started going to church really around middle school. We, my dad and I, one Sunday, wandered into Northwest Presbyterian Church. I didn't know what a Presbyterian was, uh, but I, they didn't seem too cultish, uh, and they had really comfy chairs instead of those old-fashioned hard wooden pews. And... Um, and they had uh, this really dynamic preacher who wandered about the stage, and he didn't, wasn't some weird collared guy droning on in a Midwestern accent. And uh, most importantly, they had this really fancy new technology where instead of having those old, you know, remember those bulletin things that they used to have to hand out to you? They actually projected it all up on the screen. Uh, so I was really attracted to this comfort and this conven convenience and this coolness um, all three things that we have none of those going for us here. Um, but as the years went on, I found that comfy, convenient, and cool are not good adjectives to describe the Christian life. Uh, I found that I got myself more and more involved with this man named Jesus. And as I followed him, there was increasing amounts of hardship and even suffering. Many of you I know can relate to this. Maybe it's uh, being considered a religious nut by your friends at work. Maybe it's taking a pay cut because you chose to pursue a calling instead of just working to get the extra dollar. 
Uh, maybe it's coming home exhausted, Marion Allers, on Sunday afternoon because you've been serving coffee all morning long. Maybe it's taking time out of your day to spend pouring into a friend who's in need. It's easy to become disillusioned and even feel like you're a senator fleeing the battlefield on a mule when you've been involved in ministry. And you're thinking to yourself, I have no idea. Uh, when I came here, I had no idea what I was getting into. Gospel ministry is no picnic. It's war. Maybe that's a different metaphor than you're used to, but it's a very biblical metaphor. That's what the scriptures say about it. That's what Paul says about it. Uh, if you have a Bible near you, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2, specifically focusing on verses 1 through 7 this morning. 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. I see at least two points that are really clear in this text. One, God calls us to share in suffering for the gospel. Two, God's grace in Jesus strengthens us to endure that suffering. So those are my two points this morning. Suffering and grace. How do those two things work together? Let's talk about suffering first. Uh, remember, 2 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who was a missionary throughout the Mediterranean world, and he wrote it while he was in prison, most likely in Rome. And he's writing to his apprentice, Timothy, and he loves Timothy. He's a real big Timothy fan. Uh, and uh, Timothy is pastoring a church that Paul had originally planted in Ephesus. And Paul gives Timothy... Uh, very specific marching orders. Very specific. Look with me at verse 2. He says this, Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So Timothy's charge is to raise up faithful leaders to teach them the gospel, and then to trust them to carry the gospel forward. Teaching and entrusting. That's Timothy's work. You might say, okay, that's great. That's great, Paul. That's great, Timothy. Teaching and trusting. That's a pastor's thing. That's a clergy thing. I don't wear one of those weird collars. I'm not into that. I'm not a minister. Right? Teaching and entrusting, that's for the professionals. I come here and, and I observe. I'm not a minister. Oh, but you are. The New Testament has no dichotomy between professional ministers and spectators. There's not some who are called to be ministers and then the rest of the group are just called to some other thing. Christianity is not a spectator sport. If you're in the church, if you are a part of the body, or as we would say here, if you're a member who commits, connects, and contributes, then you are a minister. You're a minister. You're, this is a, if we ask, who's the minister of this church? Um, people might say, Alex Shuttleworth, and then uh, there's that other guy with the Midwestern accent. Uh, but actually, there's one minister, his name is Jesus Christ, and there's many ministers, and that's you all. 
Everyone plays some role in telling other people about the gospel, that's teaching, and making disciples, that's entrusting. We're all doing that together. Some people do that in, in an authoritative way uh, in front of the congregation, right? That's what I'm doing right now. But we're all called to do that in our own relational contexts. We're all sharing together in the mission of teaching and entrusting the gospel. And so, Paul says, as you do this teaching and this entrusting, verse 3, share in suffering. Share in suffering. He says the same thing in chapter 1, verse 8. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He says it twice in the same letter. Share in suffering. Do you get the sense that maybe Paul wants us to share in suffering? Well, the question I have is, is what does this mean? What does this mean? Let's try to narrow it down. Paul doesn't mean endure the natural suffering that inevitably comes along to you in everyday life. He doesn't mean deal well with your own sufferings when they come to you. Certainly, we are to face our sufferings with courage and our trials with faith, but Paul's not talking about that here. That's not the point he's making here. How do I know that? Because he says, share in suffering for the gospel. He doesn't say, endure your sufferings. He says, share in this other kind of suffering that is for the gospel by the power of God. This is a specific kind of suffering that a person enters into by their own choice to labor for the gospel, to live for something that is outside of their everyday conveniences. In other words, they're participating in this work of teaching and entrusting. And Paul gives us three pictures of what this is like. He says it's a soldier-like suffering, it's an athlete-like suffering, and it's a farmer-like suffering. Look with me at verse 4. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Another translation uh, says his aim is to please his commanding officer. I think that gets at the original Greek better. Uh, The soldier has single-minded focus on his mission. Single-minded focus. So the the question for the soldier is not just, is this morally wrong? Is this acceptable? But rather, is this going to distract me from my mission? Is this going to distract me from my mission? Like a salt pourer outside distracts everyone from the sermon. (laughs) Right? Just have to name it. I had a friend when I was in high school. uh, He was a young life leader. His name was David Drees. And uh, David Drees drove just the wonkiest car I've ever seen. One time I went to ride in it, and, like, the wheel just kept turning, like, to the side. And he, in order to get down the road, he was, like, just trying to, like, wrestle this thing back into shape. Um, and it was, like, it was, like, 20 years old. You know, it made all kinds of horrible noises and sounded like it was going to come apart as we we're making our way down to lunch. And uh, on the steering wheel, he had different scripture verses that he'd printed out on his computer and taped to his steering wheel. And he said to himself, well, you know, I just think of my life like this. Uh, What do I need in order to carry out the ministry that God's given to me? Everything else goes. So he says, I need this car because I uh, I can't drive to Kaufman High School 
to be able to build relationships with kids and share the gospel if I don't have this car. So this is something that God's really given to me to have. Um, I don't need a fancy car, but I need this car if I'm going to get myself to this other place. And by the way, while I'm in the car, um, I, I meditate on this scripture, and I, I, this is my time with Jesus to spend while I'm driving. Everything in his life was focused on this one thing. There wasn't all this other junk. He wasn't driving a $100,000 car that he spent all of his Saturday trying to make sure that it was perfectly tuned. He was spending his Saturday relation, relationally invested in people. He was like a soldier. Now, Alex mentioned somebody personally in his sermon a few years ago, or a few weeks ago, and that person happened to be watching, so I bring this up so I'm secretly hoping if that happens here too, right? Um, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. In the Olympic Games of the day, athletes could not even compete. They couldn't even sign up at the starting line unless they first underwent a rigorous 10-month training process. Competing according to the rules is hard. It requires attention to detail. It requires uh, a real integrity and a willing to, to say something and really mean it. And it requires perseverance. And then verse 6, the hardworking farmer ought to have the first share of the crops. I don't know if you guys know any farmers, uh, but farmers don't sleep in, (laughs) right? They're up at the crack of dawn. Uh, Paul's point is ministry is hard work. This teaching, entrusting, cultivating ministry is hard work. So the charge to Timothy, Timothy and to us is don't choose the path of least resistance, Just don't. But go out of your way to labor for the gospel. And this labor will draw you right into suffering that requires single-minded focus, integrity, perseverance, and hard work. And if you want a concrete example of what this looks like in a person's life, we have one. Paul himself. Remember, Paul tells Timothy to do this teaching and entrusting because he himself is in the business of teaching and entrusting. He taught Timothy, and now he's entrusting Timothy with the gospel. And for Paul, it involved just a little bit of suffering. Paul gave up his home, lived on the road. When he served Christ, he gave up his freedom. He's writing from prison. He gave up his peace of mind, and he's always concerned about the churches. Uh, This scripture came to mind in a letter uh, that he writes to the church in Corinth. He says this, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. That was just the right amount that would just not kill you. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. This is basically crossing out every step on Maslow's hierarchy. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? 
Who's made to fall, and I am not indignant? The Christ life is not a life that is free from hardship. So, who wants to sign up? (laughs) Quite a sales pitch, right? After all, we live in a society that is absolutely horrified at the idea of suffering. We want to push it to the, under the rug as much as we possibly can. Um, we want to avoid suffering at all costs. If you're suffering, so the narrative goes, then it's a clear sign that you must be doing something wrong. Success is the sign that you're doing something right. Suffering is the sign that you're doing something wrong. So suffering is to be avoided. Success is to be achieved at all costs. So it makes no logical sense in our society that a person would willingly, they would voluntarily choose, while not suffering in this particular way, that they would choose to go share in suffering. Why would anyone do that? That's a terrible idea, Paul. Paul would say that this kind of sacrifice makes no sense unless you understand something called grace. Grace. Look with me at verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's a passive word, be strengthened, but it's also an active command. In other words, yield to the strengthening grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, this is an odd sense of grace. When we think of grace, we usually think of pardon for things that have happened in the past, right? And that's a very biblical definition of grace. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, the bad things we've done, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's pardon. Uh, the psychologist Carl Rogers called this kind of thing, grace, unconditional positive regard. Even when you've done something bad, even when you deserve punishment, you are regarded with favor. That is grace. And that's the foundation of the Christian life. Uh, an example of this would be the classic scene from the musical Les Miserables. Let me see a show of hands. Who's seen Les Miserables before? All right. If you haven't, I commend it to you. There's a, there's a movie version with Russell Crowe, and you can't miss out with him. But uh, in Les Miserables, the main character, Jean Valjean, uh, is thrown in prison for stealing bread. And he spends 12 years in prison. And the experience in, of that hardens him and turns him into a kind of criminal person. Uh, And so when he's released from prison, he's homeless and he's taken in by a bishop and a bishop's wife. They show him hospitality, they give him a hot meal, and in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean is so accustomed to his dog-eat-dog way of life that he goes, and before he sneaks out, he goes into the dining room and steals all of the silver cutlery and dishes, puts them in his sack and runs away. Shortly thereafter, the police catch him, and they're wondering why he has all of these plates. They see the insignia on them and go back to the bishop. He's caught. It's over. Jean Valjean is headed back to prison. Except, 
when he runs to, into this bishop, the bishop comes in, he's, he looks at the authorities, and he looks at Jean Valjean, and he says, oh, in such a hurry, we sent you out without giving you the silver candlesticks too. And in that moment, Jean Valjean's entire world is shattered. Everything that he's known about the way that the world works is completely undone. And throughout the book version of Les Miserables, the candlesticks keep showing up because they've become the defining image of this man's life that once he had to claw his way forward in the world, but now for seemingly no reason at all, for, some, for a reason that makes no sense, he's just given free gift. He's let off scot-free and he's enriched, all at the cost of another man. That's pardon. That's grace. That's what's on offer to us in the gospel. If you've had a great week, if you've been like reading your devotions every day, really engaging well with God, maybe you really spent time investing in your family this week, I mean, that's great for you. Um, You come here by the righteousness of Christ alone, by his grace. If you were fighting with your spouse, dismissive of the people around you, an utter narcissist all week, then you are welcomed with the same open arms by sheer unmerited mercy. That's the foundation of how we come to Christianity. That's grace. But that's not the whole story. Grace is more than just a second chance. It's more than just a second chance. Yes, that experience redefines your whole vision of life. But there's more to it. There's more to it. Grace isn't just pardon for the past, because that's not what Paul's talking about in this passage. Grace is also power for the present. Throughout the New Testament, we see this, that the same grace that pardons us also holds us fast. It empowers us. It enlivens us. It becomes the, the vitality that keeps us going through the day. For example, 2 Corinthians 12, Paul has what he calls a thorn in the flesh. He's afflicted in some way. Scholars aren't really sure what it is. They think it might have been a problem with his eyesight, um, but it really could have been anything. It could have been a person. Uh, all, the, all the scholars who are also pastors are like, yeah, it was definitely a person. Uh, but God, Paul pleads with God to take it away. But God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. Not my grace was sufficient for you once, Paul. Carry on with that little bit of energizing force that you, had, that you were given back then. But rather, my grace is, present tense, sufficient for you. It's the same in verse 1 of our passage. He doesn't say, be strengthened by remembering the grace that was in Christ Jesus. He said, it's be strengthened by appropriating, by receiving the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, today, in this moment, the grace of God, which the man Jesus Christ bought for you through his own blood, is available to you right now. 
He doesn't call you by grace into ministry and then expect you to continue by drawing on some other resource. You don't start in the church by grace and then continue by intestinal fortitude. You don't start by God's mercy and then continue on by being a good person who's virtuous in their own right. It doesn't work that way. A lot of us, a lot of us have testimonies that we can share about what happened five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago. Uh, but my question is, what's your testimony about yesterday? How is God's grace empowering you right now? And calling you into impossible places and doing impossible things through you. That's what he's in the business of doing. God does supernatural work through his church. The fuel that drives gospel ministry is actually not talented people. It's not uh, good programs. It's not uh, good intentions. The fuel that drives gospel ministry is the gospel. We would do well in the American church to remember that. So to close, um, I think that there's going to be at least three groups that hear this sermon. Uh, for, and, and if you're in the first group and this sounds like utter insanity to you, and you think, you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, I like a lot of the morals that are taught in church, uh, but this is, sounds totally dehumanizing and insane. Um, why would I want to share in more suffering? I don't think that, that doesn't compute. I would just encourage you to continue to stand and wonder without holding judgment. Watch those who suffer for the gospel. Consider the outcome of their way of life. What are their motivations? Why are they doing what they do? Is there something that they see? I would submit that there is. Second, uh, if you're just entering in, you're on the precipice of accepting the gospel, and all of this talk about suffering and service is really overwhelming and scary to you, um, I would encourage you, to remember that God will call you to places that make no sense at all. But God will never call you to a place that he himself does not go. And third, if you're already feeling exhausted and disillusioned, if you're laboring and trying to please God by working, just remember, I'm not going to say that you can't, because he's already pleased. God's grace is upon you. God's grace empowers you and lifts you up. My prayer for, for you would be that even today, you would feel his quickening and strengthening mercy. Amen.